Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to episode 17 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. Over the next four episodes, I'll explore how your investment in the crisis determines whether you respond positively or negatively to it. The topic for today's episode is part one of overinvestment to investment. There's no doubt that a crisis is an unpleasant experience that we wish to avoid at all costs. As I've discussed previously, crises threaten some very important aspect of our lives, whether it be our health, finances, relationships, or safety. At the same time, there's another side to that threat that goes beyond the objective harm. For example, death, financial ruin, divorce, or loss of a home. Though it's natural to have an initial reaction that's negative to a crisis in many of the ways I described in early episodes where I spoke about the amygdala, the severity of your reaction, your ability to recover, and the speed at which you can reorient yourself in a positive direction depends primarily on your investment in the outcome of the crisis, not on the objective impact it has on your life. When I talk about investment, I don't mean something tangible, like the amount of money you stand to lose from a financial crisis, or the degree that a health crisis may impact your physical functioning. While those have very real and practical implications in your life, what I'm talking about here is the psychological and emotional investment you have in the long-term effect of the crisis. Given that a crisis is, by definition, significant, you will invariably have substantial investment in its outcome. At the same time, there's a fine line between being reasonably invested and overly invested in a crisis. Similarly, it's challenging to respond appropriately to a crisis and not excessively or in a way that actually interferes with your ability to overcome it. To help you better understand the role that your investment in the outcome of the crisis may play in how you react to it, I've identified three investment forks in the road that I'll be discussing over the next four episodes. Each of the forks will explore your degree of investment, how that investment impacts you, and how you can establish a level of investment that will improve your response to the crisis with which you may be faced. The degree to which your self-identity, self-esteem, and goals are impacted by the crisis determines your level of investment. What defines a crisis as a crisis in the first place is that it threatens some sort of harm, so it's natural and healthy to be invested in a crisis. It means that you care about the end result and are willing to put in sufficient time and effort to ensure a positive outcome. However, when you're overly invested in the crisis, you perceive it as a potentially catastrophic effect on you and make yourself vulnerable to the primitive instincts, emotions, and reactions that I've described in earlier episodes related to the amygdala. As you may recall, the result of being driven by your amygdala is definitely not the one that will produce a desirable outcome for you. From the self-help author and speaker Wayne Dyer, change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. Now let's explore overinvestment in the face of a crisis. An imbalanced self-identity, fragile self-esteem, and highly and deeply held goals can make you vulnerable to overinvestment in a crisis. Becoming overly invested can lead you to getting caught up in and ultimately driven by those very basic instincts, emotions, and reactions that I just mentioned. Let's explore self-identity. Self-identity is basically the catalog of who we perceive ourselves to be both as individuals and within the context of others. It includes our personal qualities, for example, determination, compassion, or generosity. Our abilities, such as our intelligence, discipline, and whether we're detail-oriented. And our interpersonal roles, for example, spouse, family member, friend, colleague. Self-identity can be summed up in a simple question. Who am I? 
Even though self-identity can be targeted with a straightforward question, who am I, the answer is far more complicated. While innate influences help shape our self-identity, it's ultimately something we develop over time that is based on the accumulation of our life experiences and interactions with others. One key aspect of self-identity is that we come to associate positive, for example, I'm a hard worker, or negative, I'm a terrible student, attributes to ourselves. Regardless of their direction, they influence our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Another thing about self-identity is that there isn't an evaluative component to self-identity. That is, judgments about the extent to which these attributes are either good or bad. That's where self-esteem comes in, which I'll discuss shortly. Instead, self-identity is simply how you describe yourself to others. There's evidence that overinvestment in one aspect of your self-identity can have certain risks, especially when faced with circumstances that threaten that part of you. For example, if you're an athlete who over-identifies with your physical ability, then you're more likely to struggle following a health crisis, such as an injury, that limits your physical achievements. This excessive focus also means that you may neglect other areas in which you're also capable, such as your relationships or other activities that interest you. One gauge of the degree of investment you have in a crisis is your emotional reactions immediately after the crisis strikes and in the days and weeks after. As I mentioned previously, a strong emotional reaction after a crisis is normal and expected. But if your emotional response is incapacitating and persists for days or longer, you're likely overinvested. Consider what you think and how you feel when a crisis arises. Do you feel disabling stress, anxiety, or fear? Are you negative, uncertain, or worried? Do you sweat? Does your heart pound? Do you feel short of breath? Or are your muscles tight and shaky? Do you feel as if you want to flee the situation right away? Finally, and most importantly, do these reactions persist beyond the immediate aftermath of a crisis? All of these red flags are caused by a threat that you perceive as devastating to your self-identity. And the cause of that threat reaction is an overinvestment in the crisis that lies before you. From the noted psychologist Eric Erickson, In the social jungle of human existence, there is no feeling of being alive without a sense of identity. In general, too much of anything is not a good thing. When too, T-O-O, is related to a crisis, it can be one of the most dangerous words. If your self-identity becomes overly tied to a crisis, you enter what I call the two-zone. Of course, you need to care about a crisis, but you shouldn't care too much. A crisis is inherently important, otherwise it probably isn't a crisis, but you don't want it to become too important to you. When you enter the two-zone, your connection to the crisis holds too much of your self-identity, and as a result, what starts out as a serious situation that must be addressed shifts to a potentially devastating occurrence that throws you for a loop. Not surprisingly, your reactions when you're in the two-zone are neither pleasant nor helpful. The crisis seems overwhelming. You're unable to think clearly. You become absorbed in everything that can go wrong. Your confidence and motivation deteriorate because you don't believe you can overcome the crisis. When you're overly invested in a crisis as well, it feels like life or death. Consider this disturbing scenario. Imagine an armed robber stops you on a dark street and threatens to shoot you if you don't give him or her your wallet. How will you feel? Well, probably terrified. And how will your efforts in resolving this crisis be? In all likely, not good at all because your primordial instincts, emotions, and reactions will take over, which may be entirely self-defeating. 
Now, of course, when you're faced with most modern-day crises, it's less likely that your physical life will be threatened. But if you are overly invested in a crisis, it can feel as if there is someone there who will kill another part of you, namely your self-identity. That person is you. Certainly, crises must be taken seriously. And admittedly, some crises are literally life-or-death situations. Ironically, though, responding as if a crisis is a life-or-death, whether literally or figuratively, will not further your cause of surmounting it. Now let's explore self-esteem. Again, self-identity involves the perceptions you hold about yourself, while self-esteem is how you evaluate yourself in relation to those perceptions and can be either positive or negative. Self-esteem can be seen as your overall sense of self-worth or value as a person. Additionally, there's an emotional component to self-esteem in which certain feelings impact the evaluations, for example, pride or shame. Questions that can help you understand your self-esteem include, am I a competent person? Do I have confidence in my capabilities? Do I like and respect myself? Do I feel valued by others? There are several reasons why self-esteem is so important when experiencing a crisis. First, high self-esteem is grounded in love and security, which can be reassuring during a time when you may not be feeling loved or supported and your life has become less stable and secure. Also, research has shown that people with low self-esteem tend to see themselves as less capable, have difficulty maintaining relationships, and are more likely to engage in negative thinking and self-defeating behavior. These common traits become more pervasive with increased stress and have the potential to cause significant harm during a crisis. In contrast, those with high self-esteem tend to view themselves as being competent, take responsibility for their lives, exhibit more confidence, are more likely to connect with others, and are more resilient in the face of challenges. As you can imagine, these traits are very beneficial in facing difficulties of a crisis head-on. You want to be constantly vigilant when it comes to the impact your self-esteem has on your response to a crisis. Of course, you want to do everything you can to ensure that you develop and maintain healthy self-esteem before a crisis strikes. But there are a number of factors that can make this challenging. These variables include external and internal influences, such as people around you, family, friends, coworkers, unconsciously held messages that you've received throughout your life. For example, the need to be perfect, pressure to succeed, and that failure is bad, and other influences that are beyond your control, for example, inborn temperament. Some warning signs of low self-esteem that you should have on your radar, especially during a crisis, are when you want to avoid difficult or challenging situations, want to stay in your comfort zone, are averse to taking risks, experience debilitating anxiety, give up easily, are highly self-critical, feeling out of control, and making excuses and blaming others. Given the red flags I just described, the immense impact on self-esteem on how you react to a crisis may result in thoughts like, I really can't handle this. Yet, awareness of these signs can help you mitigate them. So, if you see the warning signs of low self-esteem in yourself, don't take them as indictments of your inability to deal with a crisis. Rather, see them as calls to action to help you better manage your red flags and shift your self-esteem in a more positive direction. From the American poet Maya Angelou, you are the sum total of everything you've seen, heard, eaten, smelled, been told, forgot. It's all there. Everything influences each of us. Because of that, I try to make sure that my experiences are positive.
Finally, let's talk briefly about goals. As human beings, we are motivated by goals. One of our greatest sources of satisfaction is setting, striving toward, and achieving deeply felt goals. Our goals aren't just objectives that we want to accomplish. They actually are meaningful attainments that reflect our values, attitudes, aspirations, hopes, and dreams. Since they reveal so much about who we are and what we want in our lives, we often can become overly invested in them. Unfortunately, crises don't usually play nice with our goals. In fact, they're often immense obstacles that block the path toward our goals. When we are so invested in our goals and they're thwarted by a crisis in our lives, our reactions can be strong and negative. We can feel frustration, anger, hopelessness, and despair. The more a crisis has the potential to interfere with the pursuit of your life goals, the more threatening the crisis will be to your self-identity and the more likely an emotional reaction will be harmful rather than helpful. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to Episode 17 of my Crisis to Opportunity podcast. And be on the lookout for Episode 18 in the near future.